Hey everyone, Tom Salem here. Welcome back. This is the MedTech Talk Podcast. Very happy to have you. Our guest today is Erica Rogers. Erica is the president and CEO of a very, very cool company called Silk Road Medical. Silk Road Medical has developed a T-car procedure, which is a new way of stenting the carotid artery. And uh, I'm having trouble with my R's. I guess it's my Boston stuff. And it's one of these big med tech ideas that you love to see. It's just a bold approach. Go to its website, silkroadmed.com. That's silkroadmed.com. They have some great animation there. That'll, it'll show you how the, the T-car procedure works, what is required, and uh, what is really so special about it. It's, uh, it's a great med tech story. And uh, Erica has a great story of her own. I really enjoyed delving into her origins, how she found her way into med tech, and uh, what were some of the lessons she learned from uh, her early successes? She was with Visiogen and uh, some uh, efforts that did not go as well as a Visiogen. And uh, perhaps it's those failures from which we learn the most. And uh, Erica opines on that as well. So really enjoyed this conversation with, with Erica. Uh, Silk Road is one of those companies that uh, has a really bright future ahead of it. It's, uh, it's raised over $100 million. It's backed by Warburg Pincus and the Vertical Group. And most recently has raised money from Norwest and the Janus Group. And uh, Erica talks about what is uh, coming up. It's, it's certainly looking to go public. And uh, she, she talks a bit about how one prepares for that, how a MedTech CEO prepares for that, and where they can find uh, help in, in getting ready for such a thing. So a very far-ranging conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm sure you will, too. Erica Rogers, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a, a, a great to have a company of your profile on the podcast. We, we welcome all types of med tech startups here, but you folks have been making some, uh, some great news lately, including a, a major financing that we'll get to in a bit. But before we get into all that good stuff, including your, your very cool T-Car uh, approach, uh, I want to uh, just find out a little bit about you. How did you, you've got a diverse background, you've got a, seems to be a, a little, little bit of med tech. A little bit of biotech. What's uh, how did you find your way into uh, into healthcare and into medtech? Yeah, good question. Well, I started out uh, with a desire to go to medical school. I think a lot of us in this industry start out that way. And the further I got into my undergraduate degree, uh, the more I became convinced that in order to have a broader impact on healthcare, I was probably not going to do that on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. Interesting. Um, I felt like you could make a bigger impact if you did something like, you know, cure cancer or <laughs> or create a medical device. Um, you know, you could impact hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and if I were to see one patient at a time as a doctor, even over a lifetime, I probably couldn't have the impact that I was hoping to have. So that's really what led to this let me th let me rethink the medical school thing, and is there another way to be plugged into healthcare other than that? How close was that decision? I mean, was it clear that you just didn't want to go into med school, or were you, was there some wrestling going on, some soul searching? No, yeah, there was a lot of wrestling going on, and really the pivot point was um, this cell biology class that I was in. And this guy who then worked for the Upjohn company, he was like a regional manager or something, comes in, and he's like, you know, 25, and at the time I'm like 21, right? Mm -hmm. But he comes in, and he's in this super fancy suit and uh, <laughs> looks like a million bucks, and he's telling me about telling the class about careers in the pharmaceutical industry and that Upjohn in particular was looking to recruit scientists, people with science degrees. And then he started talking about, you know, what it would look like, and you got this company car, and you know, I was like, you know, 
that's probably the way to go since I was on the tipping point anyway. It's and, a bit of a faster um, track, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I ended up working for the Upjohn Company, actually. It, it led me directly to them. I was so impressed by this guy and his storytelling. Interesting. So I know you found your way over at uh, at Boston Scientific. Was that soon after uh, Upjohn? Yeah, well, that story is, you know, I became a sales rep for the Upjohn Company. And I was calling on hospitals and physician offices. And what became clear to me is is the people that I was meeting out in the field that were really having the most fun and having the most impact were the device guys. And at that time, <laughs> it was in early days of, of pacing, right? So the pacemaker reps, they were, they'd show up in the parking lot in a pair of scrubs. And that seemed like <laughs> amazing. Really, you're going to stand beside the surgeon in the operating room? And so I became really drawn to the medical device um, idea and and so quickly pivoted really two and a half years into my career and went straight into marketing actually then for Mentor Corporation in Santa Barbara and was part of their facial plastic reconstructive division. And so that's where it really all started. And then from there to Meditech, and that was just Meditech, which was became Boston Scientific. And that was really all about cardiovascular or vascular was where it was happening and wanting to kind of get on that train. And did, did you see a career in, uh, in startups at that point? Did you see sales in a big company being your path? Did you have any idea? Yeah. I, I mean, I wanted to have more and more influence over the kinds of devices that were made, how we were solving unmet clinical needs. And so I wanted to get into roles of influence inside Boston Scientific. And so I just kind of worked my way up through the chain of command and learned a bunch of cross-functional disciplines along the way. And never in my wildest dreams did I think I would be an entrepreneur. Hmm. And when I was tapped by the venture firm that I worked for to come and be an entrepreneur in residence, and I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, you're going to think about a lot of ideas and you'll probably invent something and then you'll form a company. I nearly had a panic attack. <laughs> I can't do that. What are you talking about? I'm 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 a market development manager at Boston Scientific. Um, so yeah, that's how it all happened, and just having um, the courage to to take this giant leap and do what I'd always wanted to do, which is start with an unmet clinical need and and a white space. Yeah, that's terrific. So what firm was that? So I went to work for Three Arch Partners. Sure. Okay. At that time. Mm-hmm. And it, did that lead into Visiogen? Was that the, yeah, the path that yeah, led you there? Yeah, exactly. Yep. So there was another entrepreneur in residence at the time there. We were kind of partnered up. Uh, he was really much more of a technical guy than I was, and I was kind of the you know marketing person in this duo. And we were looking at a number of different things, obesity, ophthalmology, uh, ischemic stroke. We had a lot of, of ideas that we were hatching and things that threads we were pulling on and things we were we were pursuing and um and you know on a on a fateful plane trip we uh, sort of came up with this idea about an interocular accommodating interocular lens and we presented it more than once to the partnership um and them saying that's ridiculous what do you guys know about ophthalmology wow. and vascular people um and so they killed it over and over and over again but you know we could we could not be persuaded and we kept working on it and working on it and then, uh, lo and behold, yeah, that's how Physiogen got funded and 
my then partner, Reza Zadno, became the president and CEO, and I was sort of everything else in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> um, sales, marketing, clinical, regulatory, operations, you know, whatever it took, sweep the floors, right, all of it. And, and he remained in, in ophthalmology, or is, or is there now today, and, and you've gone on to, uh, to, to yeah. a bigger space? How do you, when, yeah. some, when someone you, whose, whose opinion you value tells you you're out of your mind, <laughs> what do you know? That's not going to work. How do you convince yourself that they're wrong? Yeah, you know, you have a lot of really scary conversations with yourself. And one of the things that I've tried to do in my career is be very aware of the things that I don't know, you know, know what you don't know. And, um, you know, so we were we were very aware of what we didn't know. But we also were all about kind of if you if you come from the outside you don't have any of the paradigms of the people who were already in on the inside. And so the people that were telling us it, were, it was impossible and you guys are crazy were people who spent their entire lives looking at ophthalmology. Mm-hmm. And because we were coming with a whole fresh pair of eyes and we had done things that they had never even conceived of in, in the vascular world, we, we felt like this kind of fresh lens emboldened us. And uh, so, you know, and, and we knew two things. One, we were not breaking any laws of physics. And I think <laughs> if you're not doing that, you know, you have a pretty good shot on goal to at least get to the stage where you can, you can test your idea. And so because we were breaking the laws of physics, and at that time, you know, nobody was doing robots. Now robots are the coolest thing. But back then we weren't doing robots and that, that would have been scary. So we said, okay, we're not breaking the laws of physics. We're not making robots. Can't be that hard. Uh, let's, let's head down this path. And, and we committed to surrounding ourselves with experts in ophthalmology and we did do that. That's great. I mean, it sounds a lot like the uh, the biomedicine programs we're seeing at Stanford and elsewhere. We talked to in Tua Patap last week. We get these fresh eyes into the hospitals and yep. they're finding new solutions. Exactly. Yeah. So you went from Visiogen, uh, and ultimately you found yourself at, at Medicines 360, which is kind of a, a, a departure from, from a device company. How did you uh, end up there? Well, it was kind of twofold. I mean, frankly, it came out of having to close the doors on, a, on the second company that I was the founder of, a company called Alex Medical, which was pursuing a very novel ENT idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and the company... Uh, had been Alex had been around for about four and a half years. I was the founder and the CEO. We had made tremendous progress, but we had failed uh, to meet an endpoint in a pivotal trial. And this was in 2008 when the world was kind of falling apart, the financial world. And so we were just faced with the impossibility of raising money. And so that led to closing of Alex Medical and selling off the the assets and the IP. And so at that point in my life, you know, I really, it was more introspection about, is this really worth it? Is this chasing the money, chasing the venture capital? You know, all those questions a lot of entrepreneurs come up with, which is, I love the, I love medicine. I love ideas. I love groundbreaking, uh, you know, white space, all that stuff. But I don't love begging for money mm-hmm. and wondering where the next payroll is going to come from, right? And so that led me to I'm going to really, really take my time on what I choose to do next because of this, you know, sort of disaster in a way. Um, and so I started consulting first for Medicine 360. They had a very simple problem. So they had a um, they were working on a next generation intrauterine device for uh, reversible contraception. And 
they were having some technical challenges with the device side of this drug device combination. And so I just started consulting with them on, on ways to solve the device related aspects. Mm-hmm. And then that led to um, them kind of figuring out that I could kind of run the operation side. And the CEO of Medicines 360 at that time is an extraordinary visionary woman and um, much more interested and better at really being a visionary than the day-to-day nuts and bolts of, you know, marching down a field and, you know, hammering out a bunch of tasks and getting the job done. Mm-hmm. And so um, – and so, you know, the board offered me the role, and I, by that time, I was so in love with this idea of creating a nonprofit pharmaceutical company, one that is really for women, about women, where, where it was double bottom line accountability, and really looking at the abortion problem from a completely other lens, which is you can't solve abortion until you solve unmet, uh, or until you solve unplanned pregnancy. And so I, felt, I just fell in love with the whole thing and uh, wanted to throw my life's work at this company. And I'm so glad that I did. It'll go down in history as one of the most important things I ever did. And that's interesting. I mean, it, it sort of was a, a, uh, a return to, I guess, what you wanted to do in, in medicine. It, was, it yeah. you, sounds yeah. like you were less inspired by the, the nice suit and the, and the potential for, uh, for a fast career. And you actually were looking back to looking for something that, that brought, I guess, meaning to your life. Is that how you saw it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think you get, you know, as an entrepreneur, as as an early stage company CEO or leader, you know, it's easy to get wrapped up in uh, the financial consideration at the end, right? And and so many times when I'm interviewing people, they say, well, what's the end goal? Are you going to take it public or sell it? <laughs> like, that's not the end goal. The end goal is to change medicine mm-hmm. and improve lives and healthcare. That's, that's the end goal, right? So, so yeah, I mean, it just brought us back to the end goal, which is um, let's let's solve uh, unplanned pregnancy and let's do it globally, and let's do it in regions of the world where women have no money for healthcare, and certainly no money for contraception, um, and these the cycle of poverty just literally cannot be broken until we can introduce family planning in, in an important way in many of these developing countries. So yeah, it was all the way back to this is what I love to do. And this is what my life's work is supposed to be about. That's great to find that. I don't want to skim over over Lux. But I mean, that was a company you had great backing, you had prospect and three arch and Venrock. I mean, it almost mm-hmm. seems like a, a a polar opposite to your vision experience where you were mm-hmm. sure you were right. And, and lo and behold, you were proven right. This one, and it's not you personally, of course, but it's the clinical data. How do you deal with that sort of result where you thought you were on track and then you just, bam, hit the clinical wall? I mean, what does that do to you as a, as a professional? Yeah, well, you know what? I mean, as much as you like to say it was, it's not the leadership, it's the clinical data, it, it was me also, which is that I had blind spots for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's only, you know, over time in history that, that we can look back and go, yeah, there were blind spots, which was... We had early indications that we were going to have responders and non-responders to the therapy that we were developing. And, you know, I kind of relied on the fact that we were we were conducting this giant clinical trial, randomized 350 patients, right, that uh, that, that would be washed out in the noise. And it just wasn't. And, um, and that was just flawed thinking, frankly. And... So, I, you know, I take a bunch of accountability, and the lesson there is um, fail faster 
and and listen to your hunches when because oftentimes they're right. Um, and then I think the other lesson learned and, and the one that I've tried to carefully, carefully navigate the whole entire rest of my career is that clinical trials that are based on a subjective outcome, and I would put pain in that category, and in our case, this was the total nasal symptom score, which is a self-reported um, outcome score by patients, highly, highly subjective, that um, first of all, enroll two or three times as many patients as your statistician tells you you need um, because patients are unreliable. People are unreliable at reporting on their own symptoms. And these, even though these uh, statistical instruments and these quality of life outcome measures are validated instruments, um, they, they can really get you in trouble. And so I have strategically avoided working with leading any company that has that kind of subjectivity in the outcome. Interesting. And, and how do you look at, uh, when you're hiring folks and candidates, how do you look at folks who have had uh, a, a failure on their, on their record? Do you see that as almost a positive? I mean, it's a cliche that, that that's where we learn most of, our, of life's lessons, but do you see that as, as a truth? I absolutely do. And as long as they can articulate why and how it failed and what was their role in that, and if it's a person who says, well, I had no role in that failure. I didn't do anything wrong. It was the clinical data, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's going to that's gonna probably give me pause. But if it's a person who says, look, the parts that I can say I would do differently the next time, and that's generally how I approach it, what would you do differently next time with the, with the value of hindsight? And uh, as long as they can articulate that, I, I generally think um, those people are, are stronger the next time around. We're going to take a quick break from this conversation with Erica Rogers to invite you to come to the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. We will uh, bring up the gentleman's name in the, uh, in the second half of the podcast, but uh, Dr. Robert Mittendorf is uh, with Norwest, and he is now on the board of Silk Road, and he also happens to be one of those VCs who invests uh, as, adeptly, as adeptly in medtech as he does in digital health. Thus, he is our co-chair of the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which is happening on November 30th in Boston. Love to see you there. I know it's a digital health conference, but let's be honest, folks. Digital health is everywhere, and this is a fantastic way for you, for you to learn how payers and providers are looking at innovation. So go to healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by letters E-G-Y.com. Healthag produces the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. It also produces... The MedTech Conference, which you all know and love, and will be at on May 31st. And uh, please do uh, do think about signing up for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. If you do want to attend, I can save you some money. Just use the MedTech Talk code, save you $400, $400 off the price of the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. So that's pretty cool. Now back to this conversation. Well, let's get into uh, to Silk Road now. You're having a lot of success there. Uh, tell us, tell me how you, you found your way to uh, to that opportunity. Well, again, it goes kind of goes back to a couple of themes in my career. I was very happily at Medicine Street, <laughs> not not wanting to make a change at all. This was a, a nonprofit company that had enormous philanthropy backing by one of the largest philanthropists in the world. Uh, I was not going to have to worry about how to get Medicine Through 60 funded. And that was a great thing because we could just focus on for once and for all, right? Uh, not have to spend half of your time as a leader raising money. 
But I got an interesting phone call um, from Tony Chow at the Vertical Group, who had somehow landed on my resume through a convoluted set of circumstances. I'd never met Tony Chow. And he said, I want to talk to you about a couple different opportunities I'm working on. Um, It wasn't just Silk Road. There was another one. And I said, well, tell me what they do. And he told me each of the companies. And I said, well, not Silk not Silk Road because that's crowded already stenting and there's a ton of roadkill. I was there in the beginning at Boston Scientific. Forget it. Don't ever call me again about Silk Road. But let me talk to you about the other one. <laughs> <laughs> I, went, I went, you know, had a few conversations with him about the other one. I was like, eh, no, that feels like not something I want to go do. That's certainly not something that compels me beyond Medicine 360, right? Since I wasn't looking to leave. And so uh, so then the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from Warburg Pincus, who was the lead investor at Silk Road. And they said, yeah, we know that you don't really want to see this thing, but we'd like to tell you the story again. And I said, no, not really. <laughs> like three times. This is Warburg I said, Pincus, no. And then on. finally, exactly. Then finally it was the, you should know the Warburg Pincus people anyway. Come and meet us. Let's, we won't even talk about Silk Road. We'll just get to know you, right? It was like the bait and switch. Um, and all and, and all kidding aside, it was, it was a great a great move. So I interviewed with Warburg Pincus and then had a chance to really understand what it was they were trying to do. And this giant light bulb went off, which was, yeah, carotidary stenting failed for for all the reasons that we know it failed. And if if Silk Road works, it'll be the only thing that works in carotid artery stenting. This is the last hurrah, and it's either going to be a huge success or a total disaster, but it'll be pretty binary. And I'll know really soon. I'll know, you know, within two years of taking the job, if there's a there there. And, and it's a fascinating approach. I do want to get into it, have you get into it, but it, it, there's a cool video at silkroadmed.com that folks should check out. And uh, what, what, uh, what distinguishes Silk Road from, from previous approaches? Well, you know, the whole flaw in carotid artery stenting is not the stent itself. And in fact, we now know from data that were published in the last 18 months that over a 10-year period, once a carotid stent is safely in place in the artery, the long-term protection against stroke, which is the whole reason we're treating this artery in the first place, is exactly the same as that of carotid endarterectomy, the tried-and-true surgery. It's the getting the stent there that's the tricky part. Mm -hmm. It's really the periprocedural hazard and the hazard within 30 days of the index procedure. And so all outcomes from an intervention on the carotid artery are assessed at 30 days. Did the patient have a stroke as a result of doing a procedure on them that's supposed to prevent them from ever having a stroke? And that's always been the Achilles heel of transfemoral carotid artery stenting. You start with a puncture in the groin, a sheath in the groin, like most other interventional vascular procedures. Catheters are traveled up and over the aortic arch and into one of the great vessels so that the internal carotid artery can then be stented. Well, along the way, particularly in the carotid arch itself, there are a bunch of landmines that those wires and catheters hit, and those pieces of debris travel north to the brain and cause a stroke. And then in order to put the the most popular kind of neuroprotection mechanisms in place, you first had to cross through the lesion itself before the brain is ever protected and then deploy this kind of umbrella filter device and then deploy your stent. So you've got multiple steps in the procedure that are unprotected, where the brain is unprotected from embolic events. 
And so at Silk Road, uh, we took a totally different approach. It was first and foremost, let's go to the let's go to the physician who treats the vast majority of carotid arteries, and that is the vascular surgeon. Mm-hmm. So they own and dominate this patient population. They have for decades. They do a procedure called CEA or carotid endarterectomy, and that's the gold standard. So we worked with surgeons to understand what was it about CEA that works and what are the parts of CEA that could be fixed? How could we make it less invasive? But how can we preserve the things that really work? Well, the thing that surgeons do is first and foremost, they cut off the circulation on that side of the brain for a short period of time. So they clamp the inflow to the brain on the vessel that they're treating. And so we said, oh, well, that's interesting. Okay, so you can put a sheath directly in the neck and you can reverse blood flow. So that's what we do. We put a sheath in the neck. We put a sheath in the femoral vein. So we have a high-pressure arterial system connected to a low-pressure venous system, which creates kind of a siphon effect. And the blood flows backward out of the common carotid artery. And we set all of that up before we've ever touched or come close to the lesion. So there still obviously is enough blood going to the brain to to give it all the oxygen it needs, correct? Yeah, that's always the question I get asked, which is, (laughs) well, wait a second. Sure, Um, you figured it out, but it's going Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, luckily nature gave us duplicitous uh, 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 plumbing in the brain. So you have two common carotid arteries in the front of the neck and two vertebral arteries in the back of the neck. And they all connect in this thing that looks like a traffic circle called the circle of Willis at the top of the brain. And so there's all kinds of duplicate plumbing, um, which actually serves the patient well for the 10 minutes or so that we're reversing blood flow on one side. And how long does this... uh... Does this procedure take, or the or the the preparation for the actual procedure itself, the reversing of the blood flow? Yeah, well, we look at skin to skin time, right? From the patient, from the time the patient's in the operating room and ready to make the little cut down in their neck, uh, to the time that there's a stitch in that same cut down. So, skin to skin time is generally an hour or under an hour for a TCAR procedure. And if we compare that to the gold standard of carotid endarterectomy, um, which is typically about two hours. So we're about half that. And depending on the surgeon's hands, maybe they're faster at CEA, but then they're going to be faster at TCAR. So it's about uh, half the time to do a TCAR versus the gold standard. Wow. So when you first heard of this this concept, what stage was it at and, and, and did it register as a, that's brilliant, it'll most likely work? Or, or was there a bit of the Vigian residual response? This is nuts. <laughs> it's not yeah, happen. yeah. Well, well, no, no. It was it, the, the response to the technology on my part was this is absolutely brilliant. This, this is this is what we should have done all along. And why didn't we think of that 20 years ago? Right. Um, so the approach was instantly brilliant to me. It seemed like. But the company was um, kind of on the eve of a clinical trial and had a kind of first-generation device that had been used in a first-in-man trial and hadn't really been iterated beyond that and was going to head straight into the pivotal trial in the United States. And um, just due to the nature of of how I got this job, I, I, I didn't enter the building, see the device, or meet any of the people prior to saying, yes, I'll be the CEO. (laughs) So on day one, it was kind of a shocker to see the state of the device um, and a few other things around the company. But there were some really great people here, um, many of whom are still here. And um, 
after I, you know, I, I sort of called the lead investor. I said, are you crazy? You're going to take this device into a clinical trial and then was talked off that ledge. And lo and behold, uh, we ran a clinical trial in the United States for the money, for the FDA approvals, and produced the best ever um, outcomes of any carotid stent trial prior to then. And with this device that, you know, was less than perfect, and then we set about really iterating the device and making it something that, uh, that, that surgeons would be delighted to use, and that's the device we now market. So what was the time frame? When did you uh, join the company? So it was uh, almost exactly five years ago. Oh, excellent. So what, were, what, what was your first major challenge? What did, did, did you, was the train running well and running on time, or did, did it require some, uh, some switches of the tracks or whatever? other weird metaphor I want to use. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. I would say the latter. You know, it's it's hard to answer that question without without um, unintentionally throwing some folks under the bus. Um, all, all really, really good people at Silk Road when I got here. But, you know, companies go through stages, and they go through these early, iterative, innovative, you know, crank out the prototypes as fast as you can, get them into humans wherever you can in the world. It's very scrappy and um, maybe not all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed, but you're laying down I intellectual property as fast as you can and, you know, things like that. And then you enter a phase where it's like for the money, like this, this is the trial that we're going to spend millions and millions of dollars on in time. And we're going to put real, real patients at risk here. And so some of the folks had to be changed out on the team. And in the end, I ended up um, changing out about three quarters of Silk Road over time and pivoting the organization to the next phase that it needed to be in. And, and frankly, I've had to do that more than once uh, because I've, I've lived through now what I would call two or three phases of Silk Road with, with me at the helm. And you have to constantly reshape the Play-Doh um, to, you know, to have, have the kind of company that you need to, to face the future. And so, yeah, there was a, there was some switching of the tracks. There was a bunch of reprioritization. There was killing of multiple other projects along the way. Um, some layoffs that are always painful. So let's, uh, let's talk just a bit about the regulatory process. You, you only re required a five ten k. Yeah, so uh, we have two devices that make up the TCAR procedure. The first is the en-route neuroprotection system. That's the flow reversal system. And that was a 510K with clinical. So the clinical trial was in support of that 510K. And it was a well-worn path because it fell under the category of neuroprotection systems, neuroprotection devices. And so we knew what we had to do and the kind of trial that had to be designed. And that was pretty well worked out by the time I got here, but we hadn't started the trial. Uh, so that was job one. And then the stent, um, we also have an en route transcarotid stent, and it's the only stent on the market that carries the transcarotid label. And we did a very interesting um, PMA approach to that. We licensed an existing stent on the market, and through that license, we gained access to the PMA and could reference the original PMA. So through that reference, we were able to vastly shorten um, the the process and the amount of clinical data that were required to get that PMA. That's terrific. And I say and I say only. I shouldn't say only. Of course, I'm sure it was still an arduous process. How, how many? Uh, what was your what were your clinical trials like? How, how large did they get? So we uh, 
we did over 200 patients in total um, in in Roadster One. 141 patients were in what we call the pivotal arm. The FDA allowed us to do some training cases on the front end for each physician because this was a brand new procedure. Surgeons had never done this ever. There wasn't a single surgeon in the United States that had ever done a TCAR. And so uh, we were allowed to have up to five or so training cases uh, before it, you know, sort of counted for the statistical endpoint. And and the other question is always uh, reimbursement. I know you got some some positive news in that regard. Um, what it, is it, it? It's now covered by yeah. Last year you got coverage from from Medicare. How, how is this being received by payers? I guess is my broader question. Yeah, well, um, so so carotid artery disease is largely a disease of the elderly. Most of our patient population is over the age of 65, and so therefore that puts, you know, CMS Medicare right in the in the crosshairs of of reimbursement for us. And there had been, um, you know, a lot of referencing back to my roadkill comment. You know, one of the things that was the Achilles heel of carotid artery stenting is that due to these clinical results that were not as good as the gold standard carotid endarterectomy, reimbursement for stenting was quite limited. And there's actually a national coverage determination around carotid artery stenting. And so we had to work very closely with the Society of Vascular Surgery, which was a relationship that began before I got here, and then I carried the baton uh, and we we made it a top priority to um, stay close to the Society of Vascular Surgery and stay close to FDA and close to CMS every step of the way, way before the clinical trial was designed, way before the first patient was enrolled, and every step of the way. And so we had consensus that if this was a safer and better way to treat carotid arteries, um, that, that, you know, everyone, FDA, CMS, and the Society of Vascular Surgery would come together to figure it out. And that's indeed what happened. And the society really led it. Um, Silk Road was kind of advising them on the side, but the Society of Vascular Surgery led um, a, a very unique setup, which was an agreement with CMS that as long as surgeons were tracking their outcomes, uh, that CMS would cover PCAR in the high surgical risk patient population. And in, in carotid artery disease, about 65 or 70 percent of all patients are high surgical risk. And so it's, it was really the vast majority of the addressable market. And so um, that's, that's how it happened. But um, it looked like magic and it looked like it happened overnight and people were really surprised by the decision, but in fact, it was really seven years in the making. Terrific. And, and you've done a great job with fundraising. You raised, uh, I think it was, uh, I had it right here, and I'm, uh, $57 million in 2015, and then closed recently on another $47 million led by Norwest Venture Partners. Uh, how what what was that process like of, of raising this much capital? I'm guessing you, I don't know if you, how much, how involved you were with the Fundraising and VisioGym, but what were, what were your experiences from from this fundraising process? Because this is uh, this is outstanding stuff these days. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I was involved in the fundraising at VisioGen in uh, at the beginning and every step along the way until until I left to do Alex Medical, and then of course was led that at Alex Medical with uh, with three very very well known um, venture funds, and so. 
you know, it was one of the things I was hoping never to have to do again. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it's the lifeblood of what we do is uh, is raising money. So, um, so yeah, the um, the fifty seven million round that you're referencing that was largely done uh, by Warburg Pincus, and one of the real attractions to doing this was having a private equity firm like Warburg around the table um, who really take the long view much more so than traditional venture. And they had a history of lots of other companies, EV3 being one, Kaifon another, names that you know, where they were in it for the long, long, long haul. And so most of the rounds were internal rounds for much of the five years that I've been here. Um, but now the company is a commercial stage company, and we're, you know, in the in the, the more than double digit millions um, today, and and looking at uh, what a public financing might look like. And so, if you're contemplating a public financing in your near future, it's a good idea to think about other folks around the table, and that's really what led to. Uh, to this last financing, which was let's let's put some people around the table who have experience taking med tech companies public, who participate in that public offering, and so um, Norwest becomes you know the obvious choice given their you know very recent experience with Intersect ENT and iRhythm and just massive successes in both of those. And so um, Norwest was just a terrific partner. And then Janice, of course, on the mutual fund side, uh, is, is, was you know, a perfect partner as we prepare for a financing on the public markets. That's an interesting point. And you look at, look at VCs who take companies public and you obviously see it as a sign of their success, but it hadn't occurred to me that their experiences sort of give them a unique perspective and perhaps a skill set that a company like yours headed in that route would really want to want to have at the table. What is, uh, I know Robert Mittendorf, he's, he's co-chair of our uh, Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. I know he's sitting on your board. What does a firm like Norwest bring to Silk Road to sort of smooth the road, hopefully, to the public markets? Yeah, well, in addition to just wicked smart partners on the healthcare side, I mean, Robert is just incredibly brilliant um and i can see already is going to push my thinking is going to make me better and smarter just as a ceo uh but it's also they know what it's supposed to look like right what what is this uh ipoable entity supposed to look like and more importantly what is the company supposed to look like post that public financing and with a company with real legs under it they have incredible resources at Norwest that, you know, I, I probably shouldn't say too much about it because then everyone will be, you know, calling Norwest when they hear the <laughs> podcast. But, um, you know, just from day one, uh, you, you know, they bring in their portfolio services team and it's everything from helping you recruit to um, finding the right real estate agents to move your building to thinking about, you um, uh, you know, compensation issues and on and on and on. I mean, they have a giant bench of experts that are around the table that help all of their portfolio companies. And so what you get when you're part of their team is you get this cross-pollinated thinking. So I'm talking to a woman whose expertise on the Norwest team is is human resources, and she's working with high-tech companies and clean-tech companies and everything else, right? And so she's got best practices outside of our industry, which I would not normally have the, the ability to tap into. And so they've just been 
fantastic, and it's only we're only a couple months in. Terrific. And final question. I know you, you hate this question, but I'll ask you: What is your uh, what is your end game with Silk Road? Where do you see this uh, this going? <laughs> yeah, our end game is to have TCAR be the standard of care, and that that is a true story. And we have many many vascular surgeon customers now who believe it can be the standard of care because it's better for patients in the end. Um, than than all of the other choices to fix their carotid arteries. So the end goal is really to make this standard of care. What happens along the way as you do that is clearly a company that's got real legs, um, a real revenue ramp, and, and either Silk Road stands alone and continues on this trajectory of being experts in neuroprotection, whether that's in ischemic stroke with a transcarotid access or it's TAVR with a transcarotid access, all of these things we've looked at and filed intellectual property around and even built some products and done some trials, other areas. Um, so if we're wildly successful with TCAR, then we're going to just keep going and protect the brain in these other very important procedures. Terrific. Well, it's a, it's a great technology. Again, silkroadmed.com. We've got uh, some great uh, testimonials in there and a nice and a great video showing the, the procedure. And uh, it's been a true pleasure having you on here, and, and uh, we look forward to following your success in the future. Great, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. And that is a wrap. Erica Rogers of Silk Road Medical, thank you so much for joining us. I know this is a busy time for Silk Road. And I really do appreciate your taking a few minutes to tell us Silk Road's story and your story as well. Lots of lessons to be learned. Thank you, MedTech Talk Podcast listeners, for joining us. If you would, do shoot me an email. Reach out, tom at healthagy.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Once again, Healthagy is the proud producer of the MedTech Talk Podcast and the MedTech Conference. If you're uh, shy and don't want to send me a note, just give us a ranking on iTunes. Or you can uh, tell your friends about the MedTech Talk podcast. The more people listening, the better. Finally, don't forget, uh, use that MedTech Talk code for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which is happening on November 30th in Boston. It's a great way to look over the fence and see how life is for digital health innovators in this crazy healthcare world. That's a wrap, folks. Tune in next week for another tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.